Hello, Yeroon. Hello, Dylan. You know what's starting to become almost as common as a Martin sighting on Elm Radio? Are you talking about Matt's? I am talking about our good friend Matt Griffith, who is back with us again today to talk about Elm GQL. Matt, thanks for coming back. I'm glad to be back. This is always a lot of fun. Yes. I hope your sleep has been more peaceful recently and your uh, (laughs) code generation nightmares have subsided. (laughs) Yeah, you know, largely. uh, Largely. (laughs) Feel pretty. uh, Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. you. So now we're going from nightmares to epic battles between two GraphQL tool creators. The show. I wonder how epic this, how how much of a fight this will be. (laughs) Fight of the century. Yeah, I mean, mutual respect, you know, I think that's where it is. Like, I don't know if it's, uh, yeah, no, I think, I think it's a really, it's a really interesting area. So, uh, and I think we have some fundamentally different approaches, right? And that's cool to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got two different approaches. We've got query builder and query generator, which we'll get into. LMGQL is a query generator library. So what is LMGQL? Tell us about it. Yeah. So this is under the namespace of vendor inc slash LMGQL. And the main approach of the library is that you point it at a GraphQL schema and you point it at a GraphQL schema, it pulls down, like it introspects the schema, and then maybe you write some queries in your, in like a local GraphQL file some queries or mutations. And when you run Elm GQL, the command line tool, it will read those queries or mutations. It will check them against the schema. It will make sure that there are no collisions in as far as like uh, fields that basically might need to be aliased. And if everything, it'll either give you one of those Elm-like nice messages, uh, Aaron mm-hmm. is saying, you know, maybe your declared variables aren't quite correct, or like you're selecting on fields that don't exist. And if it if it passes, though, it'll generate some Elm code using uh, Elm code gen. And then you can use that file to ask for that data or, or run that mutation. So this is a CLI that generates, uh, that takes GraphQL schemas in GraphQL queries, yep. enters them into Elm code, which you can then import and start using as you see fits, right? That, that, that's right. It's not a Elm package at all. It's just as you like. It's actually, yeah, it's actually not. I realized that there wasn't a whole heck of a lot that I needed to actually be in a package. Like the actual API that is common across uh, GraphQL APIs is not very big. Um, so like an example being you like, oh yeah, you can map the result or whatever. So instead of publishing a package that was maybe only a few functions to sort of help you out, it just generates that file for you when it generates stuff. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Right. So, so a very common workflow, like if someone were to try this out, the first thing they would probably do would be to, you know, install the NPM package, point it at a GraphQL endpoint or a, a JSON file for a GraphQL schema. That's right. And then they would probably go to, you know, some GraphQL playground or some, uh, you know, Insomnia or yep. some sort of tool for playing around with GraphQL APIs. There are a lot of nice tools because it's this like typed schema and um, it's a very tooling focused community. You use all these nice tools to auto-complete out a GraphQL query in one of these tools, execute it against the, the API, looks good. And then you copy paste that string into a .gql file in your 
uh, I believe in your source directory. Yeah, that's right. So generally my flow for writing these GraphQL files, I, I was using sort of Insomnia, which has a little GraphQL plugin for a while, but I found in VS Code, you can just uh, install a good GraphQL plugin directly in VS Code and then cool. just create create the file and you get the, you know, the, the, the big thing, yeah, like you mentioned, is the autocomplete or like little squigglies mm-hmm. if a field is marked as deprecated, you can sort of see like, oh, this was deprecated because of, and then it'll, when you say something's deprecated in GraphQL, you give a reason. So like a little text like, oh, you should be using this thing instead. And the way code organization kind of works is that let's say you have a file uh, that's called like, you know, myqueries.graphql, and you put in a number of queries in there. What will happen is there will be a folder generated right next to it called myqueries. And within it, there will be an individual Elm file for each query that is listed in the file. So what this means is you have two choices uh, that I think could make sense depending on your, your, your preference. One of them is it means you can put these things sort of in line. So like at vendor, we have each page has an API.graphql. And then, so you can go to that page and you can like introspect exactly what are the calls that it makes. And it generates it sort of I suppose not in line, but basically uh, co-located with the page that's using it. I think it, it would be reasonable too if you wanted to have a top-level folder with just all your GraphQL and just generate it there. But this tool would allow you to do either. Mm-hmm. So, so if you have multiple queries in a single GQL file, mm-hmm. then it will create a folder with multiple files. That's right. How are these files named? Do you give names to your yeah? GraphQL so there, files? so in uh, in GraphQL, you can add an optional uh, tag, like a, a name to a query. So there is a built-in idea of a naming in GraphQL. So in in our case, we want every query to be named. So you just type in a name for it, and it'll use that name to gen to name the Elm file. Okay, and does that mean that you require a name as well? If you have more than one query, you will need to have a name. It will default to query if you don't have one, which okay, obviously yeah. you could use for like one. <laughs> but pro- probably, probably, usually you grow out of the one query thing fairly quickly. So, gotcha. Yeah. It's really good. The, the name is really good for analytics on the back end and pretty common to use. Right, uh, right. Actually, why do you create multiple uh, files if you can, if you have different names? Yeah, that, that's one of the main challenges. And I know, Dylan, you're in this headspace as well, is figuring out how to make ergonomic namespaces. Oh, so yeah. the naming <laughs> rules in Elm GQL, which is basically like if there's a naming scheme for the generated code for different pieces of it. And it will actually detect if there's going to be a collision. And it has a rule to make a more complicated name, but that won't collide. And I can kind of get into those, what the, what that looks like. Uh, but cause there, there was a lot of thought and how do you make that a nice process? But the reason why not to put it in one big file is you increase the likelihood of collisions and also reading these files. I wanted it to be very clear when you are reading a given file for a query, what data is being used as like the arguments going into a query, what data is mm-hmm. going to be returned from the query. And if you had more than one query in a file, because sometimes these queries get pretty bonkers huge, so that there is a high likelihood uh, that it would just be very hard to parse uh, as a human. And that was one of the goals. I wanted people to be able to go to these files, like use them as a primary reference of what's happening and have it be fairly trivial to uh, uh, navigate. Yeah. So just to... um 
to make sure we've painted a picture for listeners here because it's always a challenge to uh, talk about lots of lots and lots of code in yep. an audio format. Yeah, want um, to know more about conflicts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so you take your example query. Let's say you're you know getting um, uh, listing out all of the GitHub repositories for a particular user. So for perfect, yeah, MD Griffith user. Maybe you've got a um, you know, so you say query all repos for user. So that's the name of the query. And then you you have parentheses in, in this GraphQL query syntax where you can declare variables. GraphQL has a notion of variables. So you say dollar sign username, mm-hmm. colon string bang to say right. the type. To say like this is a required string. So like what, if, if you're not string. familiar with GraphQL, one of the things that's interesting as far as squaring it with Elm is that it's mm-hmm. it's sort of optional by default required you have to have additional annotation and obvi- and not obviously in in elm it's uh, it's the opposite right so right right yeah in uh, in graphql they like to end with a bang so <laughs> so when you say variable you mean in uh, an argument or a parameter that's and right yeah the okay. the graphql terminology is variable but you're right that it, more intuitively, we, we would think of that as a parameter, for almost like a function. Like the query is like a function and the variable is like a parameter. You're, yeah, so okay. that's a good analogy. So then now you uh, you have a GraphQL query that you're writing. And in scope, you have this string, which is the username. And then you just write a regular GraphQL query for the GitHub API, uh, which is a really nice API. You can open up the Explorer. We'll drop a link to the GraphQL API Explorer for the GitHub API. It's really fun to play with. But then you you go and make your query for getting all repositories for the given username, and then you run uh, LMGQL on that copy pasted query that you build up. And let's say you select you know all of the repos, and for each repo you get uh, the repo name and the number of stars. Perfect. So now you run LMGQL. LMGQL knows that it knows the types of all these things you're selecting. Right. It knows the shape of everything, basically. Yeah. Right. So now you're going to get, uh, you know, like a type. A- so in your generated code, so if we if we called our query all repos for user, now you're going to have a file all repos for user dot elm, and you're going to have a type alias repo that's generated by LMGQL, yep. and it's going to have name colon string. Mm-hmm. And stargazers colon int something like that. Right. So it is. Uh, so if you contrast it to like a query builder approach, like like my own GraphQL package, you're not writing these type aliases and mapping it into types. You're writing your query, and it gives you all of the type aliases for that. Right. So right. So just to reframe, or not reframe, but just to reiterate, because it's like the critical thing is like okay, mm-hmm. Elm vendor Elm GQL. Mm-hmm. is you take GraphQL and you make Elm. And Dylan Kern's Elm GraphQL is you write Elm code, you're sort of composing this in Elm, and that will generate the GraphQL query. So the main thing you're interacting with in Dylan's library is the Elm. And the main thing you're interacting with, at least initially in my library, is uh, the GraphQL itself. Right. And then once you once you have that, you now have some Elm code, which we, we had that example of having a, a username variable in the GraphQL query. Now you have that as a parameter in Elm code. So you, 
right so elm code that's right so in 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 my library mm-hmm. <laughs> the names are so similar uh, in, in vendors yeah. graphql library you the part you do interact with uh, the generated code the inputs you're still composing in elm because you can obviously you want to be able to change those you know like set the date you know you know from what dates do you get the the you know comments or something right so yeah yep i have to admit that the first time i heard about elm gql i was I was like, that's a weird name. It's just not to conflict with Elm GraphQL from Dylan. Yeah. And then I learned that GQL files are a thing. So then it kind of makes sense. Name, so, naming is tough. I'm trying to emphasize the the author, which I think was the original intent with the na- like the literal naming convention, right? So like the differentiator is Dylan versus uh, in this case it's published on the under the vendor namespace for for my library right but um right although ironically it's npm install at dylan kern slash elm graphql and then it's npm install elm dash gql yeah vendor one. i didn't namespace that's it a good NPM. piece anyway yeah yeah and and forget about vendoring the vendor one because <laughs> it's just a whole can of worms right um <laughs> your yeah. is uh, shaking his head in in shame yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't done anything wrong. Shame for the podcast that, that, that you is... know of. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Okay. Okay. Cool. So, um, so where where do we go from here? As they say in that Guns N' Roses song, where do well, we go? Now? Where do we go now? Do, do the gloves come off now? I I I would like to get into it. Yeah, for sure. It's, <laughs> it, uh, hopefully, people have a a basic idea uh, of the fundamental approach and maybe we can go into like what this means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would love it, to. Yeah. So, so the way that I understand it is that if you are used to writing GraphQL queries, which is likely the case, if you have been using GraphQL and haven't used Dylan's version, then MGQL might be more intuitive at, at least. And uh, I know that there is some confusion um, with Dylan's API because it's pretty complex. It's, it looks like JSON decoders, but even a bit more complicated because you both ask for things and you map them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The way I see it, the main difference is that in Dylan's version, it's more complex, but you can do wrap early and wrap late. Yeah. Basically, um, your version, uh, Matt, is generating primitives. It's generating type aliases that are not don't necessarily have guarantees that you so right so it doesn't always generate primitives um like if the graphql it generates what the graphql schema is sort of dictating right so we're sort of saying that the domain modeling lives in the schema um but it will generate you know so in uh, graphql there's a notion of a union which maps really nicely to elm's custom types right oh cool these are these are named are these enums or are these no so there are, there's a concept of an enum which maps really nicely to uh elm's custom types just without any data both i think so dylan and my library they both handle enums basically the same <laughs> uh maybe some trivial differences in like naming conventions or whatever but it's it's basically like okay great it's a custom type you can refer to it wonderful uh as far as a union that gets sort of more interesting because in dylan's library you have the ability to sort of, when you're calling a union, mapping that into whatever you want it to be. So you you would define, so there's, you need to define a, a type to kind of capture the information. 
and you, and make that decision about where where you're putting it. And in LMGQL, you basically would you would select for a union, a union being like uh, you know one of you know it's like this can be one of these five objects, right? Um, and they and they all have a concrete name. And so what LMGQL would do when you're selecting that, depending on uh, the data you select for each one, it would generate a custom type where you'd have a variant for each union that can be selected. And, uh, and with the data that you've selected for a given uh, variant on that variant, right? Um, okay, so you would have a variant or a, a union type for every query. That's right. And so, right. And so this um, probably gets into one of the interesting bits, which is questions or an exploration around code reuse or query re reuse and sort of um, type compatibility. So you can imagine in Dylan's mm -hmm. library. So uh, uh, to frame right. it, I, so before actually we jump into this, there's a few things I want to sort of establish. One at Vendor and Blissfully before that, we use Dylan's library extensively. We did that for the last five years or so or four years. Um, I was only there for three and a half years. So uh, but it was there before before me, and uh, so we have we had a lot of code that was using Dylan's library. We still have a lot of code using Dylan's library. We we're just uh, moving over to this this new approach. And one thing that I, I want to also mention because I think everyone on this podcast just like we're, we're so used to it that we don't say it. Both these libraries have similar guarantees as far as you can't make a query, you can't ask your API for data that doesn't exist. Right. So like we're both checking against the schema. Both of these are type safe and have this approach that Dylan talked about in his uh, uh, types without borders talk, right, about how can you get more type safety outside of just the internal Elm language. I just wanted that to be like an explicit thing totally. that was said. So people, because totally. sometimes it's like, um, yeah, but <laughs> I, I didn't um, even think about mentioning yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's because we're all Elm programmers. We're like, yeah, of course it's type safe. Like, that's not even a question. Yeah. Um, so, and this is a huge benefit from both libraries that we get. That is uh, probably one of the first motivators. And if either library didn't have this, it would be significantly less appealing. But we enjoy this at work where we know the front end cannot ask for, cannot compose an incorrect query. <laughs> Um, at least as regards to the schema, and cannot ask for data that's incorrect, and and even do things like protect against alias collisions or like field name collisions, which uh, or things like you have to have a for variables, right? You have to declare them correctly, and they have to match what's in. So you say like, I have three variables, they're named X, Y, and Z. And it's like great, none of them are in the query. You're not using them. That's technically, I think, invalid GraphQL. So anyway. I wanted yeah. to level set a little bit there. <laughs> but, but then, yeah, code reuse, which I think is interesting. So in Dylan's library, you could I realize I'm speaking a lot, so please feel free to interrupt me. In Dylan's library, you could map a thing into a common type. In fact, that's sort of the, the thing you would naturally do, is you'd commonize selecting for a given union. And then in LMGQL, you would have these types would be generated separate for each query. But there is a mechanism that I just added to leverage GraphQL fragments. Shared fragments. Okay. So cool. the idea is that you wouldn't be able to change the type being returned, but you could say if you're using the same fragment, a fragment in this case is like a subquery. It's basically like a little named set of fields and data that you're selecting. The intention with fragments would be that if you're using that fragment, it that will generate the same type in Elm, and those would be 
handleable. Uh, where do you define a fragment? Is it something that you can define in another in another GQL file or right now, imports? Right now, or? it's just in a given query file. But I do want a notion of a global fragment that's basically like global across your project. I haven't implemented that yet, but it's I think it's pretty reasonable. Okay, there's nothing uh, built in to right, GQL right now. No language. No, I mean, there's a notion of a fragment. I'm not sure what they would have to add on a on a language. Yeah, there's there's def- right. They would have to have imports. We're not. There's definitely no import right. resolution. Yeah. <laughs> All GraphQL has a notion of is like there's this big GQL formatted thing that you send over to the server, and then we run it and it can include fragments and whatever, but fragments queries, that's all they have the idea of. But uh, so just to paint a picture of of what this would look like um, for for anyone who might not know union types in, in GraphQL in general, if you've got, uh, you know, you're listing all users in a system and you've got teachers and students, right? Then now you're going to have to say, well, if it's a teacher, give me this data. If it's a student, give me this data. So that's, that's right. Yeah. Sort sort of a polymorphic selection set, you could call it. It's just you know deciding based on the type um, which fields to se- to select. And and GraphQL has this um, awareness of the types. If it's this type or if it's that other type. And in in the generated Elm code, you would have a corresponding union type in Elm GQL that's automatically generated because it knows. These are the two different types you're selecting, so I'm going to create a custom type with those two different selections and the the subset of things you've selected for for each given one. So there will be a variant for each. And in Elm GraphQL, my my Elm GraphQL library, it's I mean, and, and this is sort of like a, a bit of the philosophical interesting difference between you know the the vendor approach, your your approach, and and my approach is. The um, the query builder approach that my Elm GraphQL library does, everything is very explicit and hand tailored, which means um, you have full control over the types you build up. That also means you have to explicitly write everything that you build up. You have to explicitly control everything. So there's there's more wiring to do to explicitly pull. And as Yarun was was mentioning earlier, like that that can be a, a bit difficult for beginners sometimes because mm-hmm. you have to get comfortable with, oh, I have to map all of these types. I create a type alias. Wait a minute. Is like what happens when I do selection set dot map for some type alias name? What is that doing? And it's like, oh, well, it implicitly defines a function that takes four values because it, it's a type alias for a record with four values and it's a little bit confusing. So there's a there are trade-offs there, inherent it, trade-offs. Yeah. So the way I, I kind of think about it is that so Dylan's library allows you to remodel the data coming in. Meaning like you've asked for this data and you can refine it in some sort of way. So you can say, I want to select these fields and I want to actually create a new abstraction, something different, a different type. And uh, and I want to. This is how I primarily want to interact with this data. In Elm GQL, in my library, I think the thinking is that GraphQL itself has an expressive enough type system that the the design work of of the modeling the domain uh, we we want actually to be very close to what like basically is in the schema. Like usually we found that there aren't, there are a few cases where it's like, okay, this, 
wasn't quite expressed correctly, either the schema wasn't designed correctly, or there's just this weird invariant we can't capture in the schema or whatever. We're also in the headspace of we are in control of our own schema. And I realize that that's, you know, some people are using talking to other schemas, right? And so like for us, it's like, oh yeah, we have opinions about how GraphQL schemas should be built. Um, and it's a primary discussion we have uh, a lot uh, at, at Vendor, right? And so for us, that modeling idea, we, we, want, we want it to live in the schema as much as possible. And so, right. And I'm not sure where, where we want to go from there. <laughs> so, so does that mean that you pretty much never map whatever you got to an to a yeah so that's non-primitive type you never write it again we're not i mean if custom types are primitives then i guess i can agree but like we're generating it's not everything's not a boolean right so it's like we still have yeah the expressive type system in graphql that is actually surprisingly close to elm except for a few weird nuances here's i think a really interesting area that i've i did not quite i was worried about and led me to some interesting uh, observations, which relates directly to what you're talking about, which is with Elm GQL, I think the meaning you, you have a GraphQL query, you're generating probably a decent size set of Elm code or, or data types to represent that. The worry is that, oh, I can't map this. And you might say like, well, where do I keep, like the first question is like, where do I keep my UI state? So like, let's say I needed to, have a UI widget. It was something that required its own like little state. I, I think most widgets don't need this, but in some cases you do, right? Um, where do I where do I put that? Uh, usually, when we are using the um, Dylan's uh, approach or building things in Elm, the thing what we would do is we would stuff it stuff that UI state right next to the thing it was operating on. So you're you're maybe you're a few like levels deep, and you have a list of stuff. And, you know, it, it's, um, and you want to be able to, like, maybe it's a table. So it's a list of rows. You want to be able to click into a table and maybe edit some data and capture some temporary state. So at the level of the row, we would stuff in some stuff. And then we write some code to traverse, like to map, to go into the code, do the updates in, in our update statement, right? Or not statement, sheesh, update function. You'd write some code to go into your data, you know, perform the update and like do the thing. So it's like, okay, well, what is the approach with LMGQL? If I can't literally extend the types that are within that thing, what do I do? The approach that I found to be very valuable, uh, which I think actually uh, Richard has talked about in in some cases, uh, uh, there was a talk at ElmConf that the name of it escapes me. But usually with GraphQL, you have, this is coming from a database, you usually have primary identifiers. Like you have IDs or you may have like in GitHub for a repo, they identify it by like owner and, and username, right? So you have some notion of a primary key. If you think of your model, just like a little tiny little baby database, that UI information can live really nicely in a top level dictionary. And you basically can address things by ID. And what's interesting is the code you need to write to update that, the update code becomes much smaller. Because like all of a sudden you're basically just like oh I, I just I have the ID because they clicked on this row right and I can just like uh, update that dictionary by ID and then um, and be good uh, and it's like we might be worried about what if the that that entry doesn't exist right for for a given thing and I think that there are some interesting strategies to make sure that that's not an issue sometimes with UI state it can be done 
sort of uh, just in time. So usually UI state may not need, usually there's a, a for a UI state, there is like the, the essential data, which is like, okay, the essential data in this case, maybe we have a person picker, right? It's a dropdown, picks a person. So the essential data is from the GraphQL query. It's the, it's the literal person selected. But the UI state, which is like, is the dropdown open or not? That has a natural default, like where it's just like, well, it's going to be closed by default. Great. Uh, and it means you don't actually have to instantiate a bunch of these empty things. It's just like, oh, well, when they click on this, I'm going to go to that dictionary. I'm going to say like, they clicked on this ID, open it. And in dropdowns, it's actually really interesting because dropdown state, you have this potentially subtle thing. You only want one dropdown open, except in maybe interesting cases. So like, um, you know, I mean, if it's like a nested dropdown is what I'm sort of referring to, <laughs> but usually it's like, there's one dropdown. If there are multiple dropdowns open, that's a problem. <laughs> so now addressing things by ID, you naturally get that ability. There's a very specific place where this can happen. It's not a dictionary of open dropdowns in that case. It's, it's literally a maybe ID of a dropdown that's open. It's a singular thing. So there's kind of a natural way to, that, that's how at vendor things started to, like we started to organize things. I actually really like it. Uh, that's a that's a fascinating insight from from your experience with that. It's it's cool to hear about not only like you know this tool that you've created, but your best practices that you've learned working with it. That's really interesting. I, I like this idea in general a lot. And by the way, the uh, the Richard Feldman talk you were referencing is called Immutable Relational Data. I, I Wonderful. Yes, that's right. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll drop a link in the show notes. And yeah, I, I really like this idea of like cross-referencing bits of data to derive state in Elm rather than being sort of um, feeling like you have to model your data a specific way, being, being able to say, this is the natural shape of this data, this is the natural shape of this other data, and I can derive state using both of those things, and I can create some state that references this other state and, and have sort of compound state by, by cross-referencing those two things. Right. So, so, right. so like a, um, a very common pattern, ignoring maybe the interactive UI, but the uh, very common pattern we have is usually for a given page, there will be a primary list of something. Right. So it's like the mm -hmm. list of whatever. So in, the, in GitHub, it's like a list of repos or maybe a list of issues, right. Or a list of PRs. And then usually there's also a concept of a detail. So usually you don't want to select absolutely all the data in your first go around because you're probably just displaying a table or a list of something. And if you were to select all the details for all the items, it's sort of, I sort of think it's the antithesis of what GraphQL is good for. Right. which is selecting exactly what you need so that you can optimize these different things. So what we do in these cases is you usually have a primary list and that's the uh, query you run when the page boots, right? And then when they click on something, we'll have a detail query that's like, get the details for this specific thing. And then that comes back and usually is shoved into a dictionary, which is mapped like ID to details, right? Mm, interesting. Would that be at all related to, um, we had Martin Janicek on to, to talk about, oh yeah, so Martin called it the Elm store pattern was the term that he used for this idea of sort of, um, he, he used remote data to model these states of if something is loading or, and then he, you know, had this way you could sort of say, I'm requesting this data. So would that yeah. be at all related to, would that be at all similar to that I pattern? Th I think you could definitely use remote data uh, for people who aren't familiar. Yeah. Remote data is 
loading, you know, or I have it, or it's been requested, you know, those different states. Yeah, I think I think it's very amenable to that. You could have in your details dictionary, it could be a dictionary of an ID to a remote data of your details. Um, sometimes we kind of, <laughs> this might be, this is probably like messy modeling, but for that specific case, I know I've done the thing where it's like, uh, if it's not in there, I assume it's loading. That's probably not totally yeah. correct, but there, there mm-hmm. is the case of like, well, the, the, you know, the ID lookup failed, which you have to handle that case anyway. So right now I think we're using sort of an, uh, implicit remote data, even though that's, that may not be ideal, but, um, I, I think it's amenable to however you want to model that part. I think for sure. Right. So, so one other thing, looking at this comparison between how you, how you work with types between LMG, LMGQL and Elm GraphQL. One thing we haven't touched on is custom scalers in GraphQL. So custom oh, scalers yeah. is this really cool tool where you can give names to, to types yeah. other than string bool int in GraphQL. So you can say, you know, you could say this is a username. You can say this is, um, this is a time, you know, this is a date time. Yeah. This is a timestamp. This is a, Right. Is that equivalent to a type radius in Elm or can you do a, it's not really, you can do more powerful things. So I think actually Dylan and I, our libraries are actually very similar in this, how we handle scalars. So what happens is, um, there are a set of primitives, right? So float, int, boolean, string, uh, that are just there and those decode to primitives, but the schema can declare custom scalars like, like Dylan mentioned. And what, the client-side libraries, like Dylan's library and, and my library, I guess mine's a tool, whatever, is you declare, like, so when you start up an LMGQL uh, project, it generates a file for you where you can't, which you have to own. So it generates it first, like once, and then you have to kind of like adjust it and own it. But what you can do is you can say like, okay, if you get a timestamp scaler, and we know all these scalers statically from the schema, get a timestamp, I know that this is like an ISO, what is it? 4801. 8601. 8601. I just made numbers. I got the 01. It's been a long time since we've mentioned those. Yeah. Yeah. 4801. I wonder what that is. Um, So, uh, you know, you can say, okay, I want to parse. That comes down as a string. Custom scalers, I believe, always are backed by strings. I'm not sure if that's true. I think you can technically uh, send arbitrary JSON with them. Which gets a little wonky. That does get a little wonky. So, uh, well, let's, for the sake of argument, assume that this comes down as a string. And what you can do, and both of our libraries do this, you would define in Elm a decoder and an encoder to basically say, like, this is how I could turn it into Mm -hmm. something that we want to use. Like in Elm, it would be a time posix um, or maybe a different, like, uh, data type if you wanted. So you you just have to add the decoder and encoder part. Right. And then anything of that type. Right. Or even just wrapping it. I know there is another primitive called ID, which is generally a string, but we keep, it's an ID type, <laughs> right? Which we keep as a separate thing from like string. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Th- that's the kind of thing that I was thinking of. You, those things you would like to put them into a separate type just to not confuse. Exactly. So you could, as long as it's differentiated in the schema, in the GraphQL schema, is like these are separate scalars, then on the Elm side, on both of these libraries, you could do whatever you wanted. Right. Okay. So it really helps to have full control over the schema then. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, it, yeah. What does happen sometimes is 
when you have GraphQL schemas that are designed for non-typed consumers, you get, number one, a lot of maybes, a lot of knowable <laughs> types. Yep. Yeah. You, get, you get nullable lists of nullable strings. That's very common. Yeah, you show up. Yeah, nullable lists of nullable strings. We probably in our schema, we uh, definitely push the backend developers. We're like, can we just make right. this require? Can can you just remove the null here because it's technically expressible, but it, I don't. It's never meaningful. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So so that happens a lot, and then uh, custom scalers are heavily underused because like you don't really necessarily gain a lot from them if you don't have a a type aware consumer. Yeah. And that's so, right. so that, but if you control your schema, then it is so valuable to have those, um, to use those custom scalers in your, in your schema, in your GraphQL schema. Basically the way I think about, and I think we talked about this on our own GraphQL episode a while back, but mm. the way I think about custom scalers in, in GraphQL is it's a contract. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a promise that uh, this conforms to this specification, ISO eighty six hundred one, and it's like, like how do you how do you trust the contract? Well, because usually, like a GraphQL framework, like a, a backend framework for for GraphQL, if it knows that a value is type, you know, date time, then it's going to use the same serialization and deserialization function to to manage incoming inputs of that type and to serialize outgoing data of that type. And so you can sort of trust that it's going through this pinch point where it's treating it through the same um, through the same logic. So it doesn't mean you can't have bugs where you incorrectly serialize or deserialize it, but it's going through one pinch point. So it's a really valuable tool. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I've definitely had thoughts about how to take it especially when you control the schema to take it maybe farther than I, I think the average schema, <laughs> like an yeah. example is usually IDs. Like we sort of say like, right. Oh, all IDs are the same. It's like, well, they're, they're not, you can use yep. an ID for one thing for another thing. And then it's, it doesn't make any sense. So one thing I've thought about is like, okay, well, is this a user ID or is this a, you know, you have the idea of a flavored ID, right? So basically you flavor it by the entity or the encoding of it. And I think that doesn't show up as much specifically because people aren't using things like Elm <laughs> as exactly. the general consumer. But in Elm, it's actually great because it means like you could have the guarantee like, oh, this mutation takes a, a user ID and like you can get that user ID from, you know, this call. It's like, great, there's some immediate additional type safety. So I, I, I realize where we're going, but I wanted to... I don't think we talked about this, but one of the primary motivators for Elm GQL and why we leaned into the GraphQL approach was we have, you know, we have a, a really awesome set of Elm developers at Vendor. It's super exciting. We're also hiring, just so you know. But we we also have a lot of developers on the back end with a lot of different experience. Some of them jump into the Elm code pretty easily. Um, some of them are farther back, I suppose. I don't know. But uh, what we found was very valuable is just if someone comes to you and asks you the question, what data does this page request? The story around that is so great. So if someone, if a database engineer who's trying to debug a performance issue says what, and they're, they're not really touching Elm at all. And they're like, okay, this page is, I know it's a problem. <laughs> you know, where, where can I get a query so I can test this stuff? When you have the query as a static file, it's, 
it's great, you know, and then they learn, they can just go and get it. They don't need to, well, I want more people to learn Elm. It's fine if they don't have to. Right. So, um, so that was a big motivator, just made, like clarity. We did have, in some cases with the same visibility approach, one of the primary things to think about with GraphQL is over querying for data. So like, I think there's a question of, we kind of mentioned this, but there's deduplication in your queries, which uh, in Elm GQL is handled by fragments, but there's also like reuse of others of, in another sense. And what we found is that you actually, so also with fragments, we have gone about, about a year with an older version of Elm GQL, my library, and we've not really had a massive need for fragments. We do now, there are a few cases where this shows up, but I think the gut intuition that we have is that if queries are easy to write and they're quick and you have really wonderful editor support, you should think about not worrying about sharing stuff. You should just write a new query because that'll allow two separate instances to diverge when they need to. And uh, the opposite of that, when you've overshared between stuff, uh, can be very painful because you'll be like, this page is very slow. I don't know why. It's like, oh, we will, we were using that. We were selecting this other data that this page technically doesn't really even care about. <laughs> it, it's the classic don't repeat yourself dilemma between repeating code and repeating knowledge, right? And if, if you, if you deduplicate code that doesn't represent the same knowledge, then those two things don't want to change together, and it's, it's and we and we found that the the speed of being able to write these queries changes the math you need to do because it's like if if you can write a query easily and you can adjust it easily and you know you're never unsafe, then it's it doesn't feel it's like oh great I'm just going to write a new one it's not that it's not that big of a deal like mm -hmm. um, um, yeah yeah so, so you so you shared a few motivations. Now I'm wondering, like, you, you were using Dylan's version before. That's right. We what, still are. <laughs> yeah, you still are. What pain points did you have that led you to wanting to write a new version? Yeah, the, the main pain points we had was questions over, over sharing of queries. And we went through a few, uh, avenue, a few like iterations of performance trying to get some of these pages down to like load reasonably. And one of the biggest challenges we found was that, oh, there was a shared, uh, what's called a selection set in Dylan's library, which is basically just a selection of fields. There was a shared selection set that like a one page was using and probably driving, needed a lot more data. But then like, so like you have like the detail page is selecting a bunch of data and then maybe the list, the page that lists a bunch of things is also using that. And so then you're accidentally uh, over querying a bunch of stuff. So th there was... So untangling those that was was challenging, and right. then, so, so you you can do separate queries, but it, you can you felt pushed towards reusing the I think there, same queries. There's a really yeah, there's a really interesting discussion around incentives, yeah, and like how that how those sort of can change depending on what's well, like what is easy, and so yeah, that's right, and and the other big motivator uh, with the GraphQL thing was. Well, it was like the writing experience when you have a plugin is is really nice. Yeah, there's <laughs> um, a lot of good like, tooling. Autocomplete is like a superpower. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so that was really wonderful. And the, the last one is we're growing at a sort of a ridiculous pace and and wanting to remove barriers to knowledge. And we know that GraphQL is sort of our primary, you know, domain modeling is the GraphQL mm -hmm. layer because that's how we coordinate all this stuff. 
And so making that more accessible on both sides as as much as we could was like beneficial. So those cases where if someone needs to drop into a page and understand, oh, we know that this page takes five seconds to load. What the heck <laughs> do they have? Mm-hmm. Do they have at their fingertips the, the enough information to debug that in a nice way? Any comments, Dylan, as to these pain points? <laughs> You're totally wrong, Matt. You're totally wrong. <laughs> yeah, so it's really interesting to hear like that that story. And one thing you didn't bring up also, but but we've talked about this before, is yeah. um, input objects. And oh right, so yeah, yeah. I I know, like, I mean, from can you share slides on what an input object yeah. is? Maybe? <laughs> yeah. So with, I I know from my own experience using. As an Elm GraphQL user, it's it can be really painful to you know just so so input objects can get into these deeply nested data types, these they're, deeply they're nested tricky. key value yeah. pairs. So basically, like for example, if you're doing a um, you know if you're sending up like you know you've got like a user profile page, you're on the page, you you select all the stuff for the user profile, the email address date of birth. And now you want to update that. What do you do? Well, you have to, you're not selecting data, you're sending data back. And so GraphQL has this idea of input objects. So you're probably going to do, um, you know, not a, not a query, but a mutation GraphQL request. It's just a semantic difference. Otherwise it's the syntax, syntax is the same, but you're going to be sending data up, which means you're building an input object. You can also have an input object for specifying filters to filter the data on it's it's just your um your input data to the your graphql yeah. query which contains a lot of optional things right you're right <laughs> the main irritation that dylan and i have bonded over <laughs> yeah, is yeah. um is in graphql uh the default actually you have to mark something as required so the default is that something's optional but the supremely irritating thing about it yep. <laughs> is that optional is actually kind of squishy and weird. So what optional yep. means is actually there are three states it can be in, not two. So it's like null times again. So it's what it can be is like, let's say you have, uh, if you think about it as just like a, a JavaScript record, you can have the value either it is uh, present or it can be where the field is there, but it's null or the field is not there. Now, the irritating part about this is that null is generally rarely used. It is used to say, like, delete this thing sometimes. Sometimes people, you ha- so it's like one of those things where it's like irritatingly, in v- some small cases, it's semantically valid, but usually people mean absent, meaning don't send up this optional thing. And because in Elm we have to be explicit, we have to sort of represent all three of these. And I think the confounding factor that Dylan and I have both had to design around is that if something is optional, you have an optional argument to your query, we want to make sure that the generated Elm code, uh, if someone changes the schema and it adds another optional query, we don't want your Elm code to break. It should still compile. So the default of like, I'm going to make a full record right. that represents all the arguments and everything's going to be, you know, maybe we represent it not with a like, this like super maybe, which is like pre- like uh, which Dylan and I have both messed with, which is mm-hmm. present with the data, absent or null. But if you drop that in a full record in Elm, it means your code's not going to compile if someone adds an optional argument, which 
people get they're like why <laughs> you yeah know? yeah and El the elm syntax doesn't have a way to do records with with optional fields except explicitly having a data type that represents that optionality so you That's can't right. just leave off a, a field in your record and then elm says oh well i'll use this default absent value for the things you leave off which which is very cumbersome for users if there are a hundred different options which is not unheard of in a graphql schema that are possible inputs for a for an input object you could build these are the possible fields you could provide these are the possible filters you could filter on for this table of data and now so there there are two different thing, things here there's one is the the um the approach to the the generated code for building up input objects in elm gql yeah which i want to talk about you've taken an interesting approach there mm -hmm. potentially one that uh might be like well suited like maybe elm graphql it would be a good fit for and uh, i could i could try that out it's not incompatible with the approach but yeah. the second thing is this query generator approach that elm gql uses you can actually like bypass that where actually you don't need to pass in any of that data so like in our example of you know the the graphql repository that you're, you're selecting all repositories for the user you're just passing in a string of the username so for the for the consumer in the elm code you need to pass in a string not an input object the right. input building up that input object is handled in the graphql query itself totally and and therefore you you don't so you can skip all these levels uh, whereas in elm graphql my elm graphql library what you what you need to do is you need to explicitly build that up to express a valid query so that means since Elm doesn't have a way to do records with like a, an implicit default for, for fields you don't mention. What, what Elm GraphQL does is the generated code lets you build these things up with, with functions where you build up an input object. Uh, it passes you a record with all the defaults set as absent. And then you can do the, the record field update syntax where you explicitly set the fields you don't want to be absent right and it, it works it's type safe it's perfectly type safe but right. you get all these nested things where you're passing these functions that give you the default records and it's it's very much not ideal so you know that's that's definitely a real pain point and i believe that was one of the motivating cases it, for for you as well right? it was it was one of the things that um that we were thinking about for sure is you mentioned filtering and filters are usually <laughs> usually across the board they are big complicated inputs it's like you have like i want to filter by this and this and this and this and we're going to and them together and then we're going to and that with an or thing and then we're going to set this value which and and we had some pretty complicated filtering which emphasized that pain and in a, a vendor mgql the things that we found that were surprising after we started messing with it. I mean, it's one of them that is uh, exactly what you mentioned, right? So it's like, uh, you can just actually build most of the input object in your query, like where you just have the records there and it's really convenient. Another few things you can do is that, you know, something can be optional in the schema, but could can be required for your query. So an example being like, uh, maybe the query you're like uh, setting, requires both, if we're talking to GitHub, requires both the uh, owner and the username 
right? Or or uh, or the the name of the the repo, right? And I think those are those might be required, but it, but in in the schema, but let's say they they were nullable, they they were optional. You could actually in LMGQL, you could actually flag them because you have a little declaration at the top. Here are my variables and what the types are, and you could actually say like, actually for this query, these things are required, and that simplifies the code generation a lot um, because you you basically this concern <laughs> doesn't show up, so you can just skip it sort of entirely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so. I, I think it's really, really cool. Like I, I, I love the um, motivation of like having shareable GraphQL syntax between different teams that, that can speak the same language. And, um, and I think, you know, again, like just sometimes you fire off a mutation request and most of what you care about is building up this big input object. And mm-hmm. um, right. you don't care that much about the data or sometimes, you know, the, the data is really, um, you know, your, your schema defines it pretty nicely and you don't need that much fine grained control. So I think, um, you know, I think that it's, I think it's great having both of these approaches. I could certainly yeah. imagine myself, like, I mean, I, I certainly personally, I, I do really like having fine grained control over my the, types. The types. Yeah, sure. Not only sense. through the mechanisms of how I define my GraphQL variables in the query, and the fine starts now. Like scalars are are a great tool for that, and mm-hmm. yeah, and totally. the variables. But I personally do really like having like super fine grained control over that. I, I wrote a I wrote a blog post a while ago um, called "Types Without Borders Isn't Enough." That's about mm. my original design of. Uh, actually, uh, maybe a little deja vu here. Uh, Elm TypeScript interop oh, versus yeah. there we go. Elm TS interop. Oh, oh, that's okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I uh, I um, disambiguated my own <laughs> tool. But, uh, we we talked about that in our Elm TS interop episode. But the in a nutshell, the approach that Elm TypeScript interop took was you you have all of these ports in your Elm code. And it sort of statically analyzes all of that code, and it knows th- all of the ports you define and all of the types of those ports, and then it generates TypeScript bindings for that. So it it knows the type information for your Elm application, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, but then, what happens when you want to serialize a custom type? And so, like, so in that particular case, there's no way to serialize anything that turns into a custom type. Which is unfortunate, right? So that's that's or, or a hard like no no way like automatically. Is that what you mean? Right. So you yeah, could right. serial uh, you could serialize a JSON encode value mm-hmm. over sure. to yeah, yeah. report, but now it's untyped as far as TypeScript is concerned. Mm. So I wrote about that that journey in this blog post of of how I uh, went with a more explicit approach where you you build up the mappings of the types. It allows you to decouple how you might want to represent something in TypeScript from how you might want to represent something in Elm, all these classic things that we're familiar with, with kind of this idea of JSON decoders. So I I certainly think like both of these approaches have their benefits and their, their uses, but I think it's really cool to have, have both of them out there and uh, yeah, really cool to hear about your journey there. Yeah. So actually Matt, you still have both uh, in your project, right? At Vendor. 
That's right. We're using Dylan's library and we're also using LMGQL. Yeah. I think we're probably like 50-50 right now. Okay. But you're basically intending to, to mine We're intending to use LMGQL. Yeah, vendor, yeah mm-hmm. LMGQL. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that was my question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. I know we've we've gone long. There's a whole other interesting discussion around generating, using a schema to generate mocked values. Yes. This is something that I don't, neither library, like I wanted this in here uh, or as a concept because it's something that neither library does right now, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it would be really mm-hmm. fascinating for testing. I could use an example. Yeah, totally. Exactly. So we had, there's a little bit of a story here in that vendor or previously blissfully, we wanted to use the project Elm program test which is a way to like basically run, you know, tests that say like, uh, you know, click this button. And if you click this button, then this request would be made now, um, which is cool and valuable. Uh, the biggest challenge to using that is data. For example, for loading a given page, I need to have a certain set of data to actually just show the page, right? So we had a version, this existed or exists actually in the vendor code base where it would look at the query that's being issued by that page to boot it up. And it would like look at the schema and say like, okay, I can make you something that like looks like that, <laughs> even if it's you know, not semantically meaningful at all. But it's like, here's, oh, a string. Great. I'm going to have a string called placeholder. And then you'd be able to render the right HTML. This is all done in memory, right? So this is kind of like you think about browser automation, but there's no browser being booted here. This is a pure piece of JavaScript that's being run, again, via Elm program tests. And so if you can view that page, you can do stuff. You can click buttons. And you can actually, in Elm program test, you can say, well, you know, if this button is clicked, I want to ensure that this query is fired off. Right. And one of the, and what was interesting, though, is we ran into some challenges with just giving hard-coded scalers back, where it's like, oh, if it's asking for a string, we're going to give this string. Uh, like one string for all strings, right? To rule them all. So an approach that I'm really interested in exploring and that Dylan actually mentioned, suggested, and I'm like, oh, that sounds great, is using the schema or even a query and generating a set of fuzzers that you could, of the query you're asking for, and then you could craft exactly what, or not exactly, but with the level of definition you want for what data is returned for a given request. So what that means of what you could do is let's say you have a thing where um, you're keying something by ID and you want to make sure like, you know, if I get this data, then the thing, the data that we got is being rendered in the UI. You could actually do that test because you know like, oh, okay, I know that the ID is specifically this, you know, and whatever it is for that page. And then you and, and I know that it's being attached as a class or a CSS class or something. You could actually ask Elm program test, hey, is that is that visible? Anyway, that's that's the sketched out idea, basically generate fuzzers, generate uh, mm-hmm. so auto mockers or whatever that you could adjust if you want to. Like if you, you could have the auto generated one. And if you want something that's more specific, copy it out, adjust it as you need. I'm really excited about that idea. I think it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the code generation opens up so many, so many cool possibilities. Yeah. So one thing I, I wanted to, to point out too, as a difference. So there is, there is a limitation of, of my Elm GraphQL library, which is Currently, there's no way to to use GraphQL variables at all, and that is, um, you know, sometimes people will will use GraphQL variables to try to mask certain sensitive values in their backend logging, or 
Oh, interesting. Okay, I didn't know that. that. But that makes sense. Yeah. Caching reasons. Though are those the same as the function parameters again, or yes, they okay. can. They can be, but essentially, yeah. All <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but, uh, but it's it's a piece of GraphQL syntax that allows you to to have a named value which you can reuse um, throughout a query. Right. So okay. In in Elm GraphQL. Um, there's no such thing. You uh, you have values, you know. You have input objects. You have selection sets. You have fields. But there's there's no place it, like it, it, the generated GraphQL query that's produced by Elm GraphQL will never include a GraphQL variable in it because it and just drops no. the values directly in in line. Yep. Exactly. So I'm guessing that's not a problem, but it makes the query bigger. Is that it? Um, well, if you have a particular use case where your your backend uses, like, for example, it says, hey, if you say get all this data by user ID, and we take in that query and and we cache it based on this key of the ID that's passed in as a variable. So certain use cases like that, so that's definitely a limitation which vendor inc elm gql does not have that limitation so that's that's definitely one thing to be aware of if you have that use case right so separating out variables it can there can be some performance things that you can do like uh it's not just caching based on or it can be caching based on like the inputs but also if you have a query that is totally like is not varying all the time you can actually cache parsing that query where the back end can just uh actually hash that query and then it doesn't have to parse it and validate it and everything. Yeah. And so that can skip some overhead. We we thought about that, but we uh, it's not highest on our list of of things we need to resolve performance wise. But we yeah, there is that option. Yeah. What is that? Um, what is that technique called again? Where you um, where you can send a hashed version of a query. Yeah, you can, you can yeah you can take it one farther where instead of sending the query, you basically the front front end and the back end know the hash, and they ju- and they just send up the hash. That's, that's a bit and, and variables. Yeah, variables are okay. are in all these cases uh, sort of in a different field. Interesting. It's really interesting. I'm also like makes me nervous, but like I get it. It's yeah. cool. <laughs> like one of the interesting things there is you can have an allow list for things that. Oh, really? For like hashing behavior or something? Uh, well, you say like these are the blessed queries and anything yeah. else yeah, yeah, is yeah. Right. Uh, we, we just won't run. We'll just throw an error, right? So if somebody's poking around trying to, you know, do do a DDoS attack by finding deeply nested GraphQL queries or things, you don't have to like, you don't have to worry about that. I mean, it's also interesting too, because you could potentially have a backend where you say, well, I'm going to conform to the shape that I promised to send by this query, but I don't need to use any of the GraphQL formalities for built safely doing the data loader pattern to make sure I don't have N plus one database queries and stuff. I can just like pretend like it's a rest response, but promise to conform to that shape. So it's an interesting space that sort of relates to, to the LMGQL like query generator approach. So interesting space to explore. So, and another thing about Elm GraphQL, so there's there are certain like high level things about uh, like the field aliases are built up for you automatically. 
for better and for worse, like you said in LMGQL, you get a build time guarantee. So it makes sure you've done that correctly. And it is the aliasing thing is interesting, just as a small note. Uh, you do have a little bit of ability in LMGQL to influence what code is generated, what names are used. Uh, LMGQL specifically um, emphasizes aliases that you've provided as names that are it would prefer to use versus like calculating something from the schema directly. So if you add an alias, that's a nice way uh, to have some like know that like that type for that selected field is going to be named that or that field name in the generated code. Yes. So yeah, so it, which is which is a thing that uh, like as a concept because there's no code generation in um, GraphQL as far as queries or stuff. It's not, yeah, it's just a totally separate thinking. Right. So I, one thing I was curious about was so you you mentioned before the recording that like originally you started out this exploration uh, not with a query generator style as it as it is now but with a query builder style akin to Elm GraphQL. So what, what was that story? What did that look like? Yeah, so originally our big the big pain point that started everything, I think, was building up these big input objects, these big filters. We had this very big <laughs> input object and, and it became very challenging to extend beyond a, a certain point. Was it that bad, the chat? Yeah, it was rough. <laughs> like, Interesting. Again, when you're dealing with the... In Elm, you know, you have to deal with the entire option space explicitly. So when you have a lot, especially there's this really interesting interaction with optional stuff. It's just um, if the schema goes, and to be fair, that schema, we, I think, know better now uh, as far as how we create our GraphQL schemas. And probably if we redid that feature, we wouldn't go quite as uh, as nuts as we did. But we still had to deal with it and and sort of compose it. And so there was a lot of exploration around simplifying input objects initially. And I think initially also we were kind of wary of the, it had come up, but we're like, I'm not sure, like, I don't know about the GraphQL to Elm path. And then, I don't know, at a certain point, we, we were just like, no, this, this seems at the very least useful in a lot of simpler cases. Uh, and after using it, we're like, oh yeah, no, this actually works uh, in even very complex cases. We feel pretty good about this. So that was kind of the progression. So Elm GQL had a whole version of it that that was basically very similar to Dylan's library with some uh, small changes around input objects. And then the discovery was we really preferred this GraphQL to Elm approach. Uh, and then partially I was like, okay, well, does it make sense to have both in one library? I'm like, I mean, there might be some circumstances where like I thought about you could specify fragments in sort of like like in the in the Dylan way, <laughs> but partially I'm going to let that need sort of naturally arise. I know supporting fragments is like in GraphQL. It's like that makes sense because it's in the spec. <laughs> but but so I took out I took out that other part that mirrored Dylan's library and, and just focused on the GraphQL to Elm approach. That's really interesting. I I could certainly imagine a hybrid where you have um, a query builder style where you could, for example, like have just like in Elm, Elm test files, you have exposed values of type test and it, and mm. it registers yeah. those into the test runner. Right, right. Yeah. You could do something like that where you have these like query builder queries, uh, graphical selection sets that are exposed from a file and those are your fragments. 
And then uh, LMGQL lets you compose those fragments in, and then it will use the appropriate types from, from those. Yeah. So like that was definitely along the lines. And I think in, in my previous or strange loop talk where I talk about LMGQL very briefly, I mentioned that that was like a thing we're supporting. And now I'm currently like, well, let's see. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I feel as is with just the, uh, um, without having the defined stuff in Elm, it's a pr- I, feel, I feel pretty good about the project. I'm not ruling it out because ruling out stuff is not <laughs> always beneficial. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was definitely on my mind. So I have this hybrid approach. Yep. So now that you're using these uh, GQL files, uh, mm-hmm. you say that you have auto-completion, that is very useful. Yep. Do you also use linters on those kinds of files, for instance? No, but I think there's a re- there could be. There's an interesting probably question around like unused things. But that's an interesting probably discussion around like doing analysis on the Elm side, maybe, and then figuring out like, it would be interesting to explore. We, have, we haven't run into that need because usually if, if the unused stuff is uh, the highest value, um, just having the query there and where it's like this, I can see it directly and this is exactly what's being requested, becomes pretty easy to audit a, a query and, and to remove stuff just manually. So it, it's interesting, but not necessarily a high priority is kind of where I would, I would frame it. Yeah, I was mostly wondering, like, what cool things can you have with linting on those files? Because mm-hmm. I, I, I have trouble finding out what you could uh, figure out. I, I don't know. I mean, I think some things that are interesting is uh, there's the deprecated directive. So basically, yep. you can know if a field is deprecated. That's interesting information. That's not really linting, though. It's more to, well, it's applying the schema to your query, right? Which, yeah. um, so a, a limited version of linting. So that inf- surfacing that information is interesting. But yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious. If people can come up with a compelling like benefit or, or goal in mind, I'd, I'd be curious to hear for sure. But yeah. Yeah, and I, I guarantee you there's some tooling with like, regular GraphQL schemas and GraphQL syntax queries to look at all of them and find unused fields and things like that. Like I'm sure it exists. Right. There is another thing that I think about that, but it's still based around directives is on our, in our backend schema, though this data isn't public, but when we're compiling our Elm app, we could make a special version of the schema that had this information. You could have a directive that informs what permissions are needed to run a query. That's already in our backend schema. So basically, if there's a query, you annotate it with like, this query requires, you know, and there's an enum that has a, a bunch of uh, permissions listed. So like this query to run it, you require these permissions. I always thought it would be really interesting if there was some way for the front end to know what permissions were needed um, so that ultimately the idea we would, <laughs> if someone can't do an operation, we don't want to show them the UI to do the operation. Uh, in most cases, but tracking down those permissions thing is you, it's a very manual task. I'm not sure exactly what we do with the information beyond just making it very obvious to the Elm programmer, but that's sort of a static analysis thing. It's just, again, it's through that mechanism of directives as opposed to full like analysis. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to make sure we, we bring up this tool by Harm Bushlow. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that. Okay. Um, 
called GraphQL to Elm. It's a and it, so this is a probably similar, a better name <laughs> than mine. <laughs> it's very obvious what it does. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So it's a similar query generator query generator tool akin to Elm GQL. So I wanted to just make sure we we bring bring that up that it's a, yeah. it's a similar approach. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I I only. I think I it was on my radar a little bit, but I've never played with it. I think it seems pretty similar, mm-hmm. but I, I I personally don't know the the ins and outs of of the differences of it. But I, I'd be curious if someone compared the two. Yeah, yeah, that would be great to hear. Tw- uh, tweet at us or mention it in the uh, Elm Radio Slack channel, or um, yeah, let us know if you've played around with it and and take a look at Elm GQL. Let us know what the differences are there. Great. I'm uh, I'm guessing there are probably some subtle differences between the way that you manage input objects. So like in in Elm GQL, we we mentioned that you can sort of get around needing to build up deeply nested input objects by the way you pass in variables and and do most of that in GraphQL syntax, not Elm syntax. Yeah. But um if you, you know, uh for for that GraphQL getting all repositories example if if you uh have your variable be this input object in that lets you define all of the options instead of saying the the input the uh the graphql variable it's going to take in is a string for the for the username you want to list all the repositories for if instead you say it's just the input object that lets you define all of the custom filters that right, the, this graphql yeah. api takes then now you get to use uh, the Elm GQL generated code that lets you build up these input objects. And I, I think that's like one of the really uh, interesting bits of design work there. That So I'd be interesting, interested to compare those two. I'm also really interested to compare that with Elm GraphQL because I think there's a lot I could learn from that approach there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I'm curious to see how the two tools kind of square up <laughs> or, yeah. or the three tools rather. <laughs> <laughs> So I feel like only one can leave. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like uh, Matt, you made a pretty compelling case for your tool. Got anything else you would like to add? I mean, I think. Uh, I mean, are are you yourself convinced by Matt's approach, or uh, are you going to continue using your your own tool? Well, I I think. I, I think it's really interesting the story of like what what do you want the source of truth to be and like one of my my main motivations actually at the time that I designed my Elm GraphQL library there was an Elm GraphQL it was actually um, if you did npm install Elm GraphQL this was the tool like Jay Hassan or I'm sorry I'm 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 botching the the username but some something along those lines I'll I'll drop a link to this um, deprecate now deprecated repo but um, it doesn't work for beyond Elm 18, I believe. But that was using the query generator approach. And so I was aware of such approaches when I built Elm GraphQL. And I built Elm GraphQL because I I thought I would love to just work in Elm. You know, I mean, I, I and I wanted to express these things at a high level with Elm. I wanted IDE completions in Elm. I wanted to have fine-grained control over the types I build up in Elm and how I map them. So... I do personally love having fine-grained control over um, how I build up my types. Yeah. Even if I have control over over my GraphQL schema, I really like that. I do like being able to build up a selection set within an opaque type. 
and expose that so that um, it's not a type alias that could be constructed anywhere. It is an opaque type where that knowledge is constrained to, to live in that one place. And the only way you can get that type is through that selection set. I, th- I think that's a, like, so the, the way I like to sort of maintain my code, I really like maintaining it in Elm and being able to use, you know, Elm tooling for it. Yeah. That, that I can craft myself. So that's, that's just my preferred workflow. But that said, like, I think it's, I mean, even, even though that's my preferred approach, it definitely gets my interest for things like, I don't know, maybe I just want to fire off a bunch of data to the server and I don't like the data I'm getting back is not all that nuanced or interesting or important to my domain modeling. So yeah, I think, I think it's really cool to have different approaches out there, but I, I think, um, you know, I think they both have their uses and yeah. Uh, yeah. I would just recommend for people trying it out. Probably if you're evaluating tools to give them a go, like see if you can't like take, take a day if you can. I mean, choosing your, how you interact with data is probably one of the most foundational decisions you're going to make on the client. <laughs> so like play with it, see what you vibe with. I think the important part, uh, it, well, the first important part is both of these are type safe ways of interacting with an API. That's wonderful. Like, and yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of really cool tooling out there. Like I can't remember the the name of the tool, but a lot of, um, a lot of these like graphical, like graphy QL. Yeah, yeah. The, the explorers for a lot of stuff. It's yeah. Yeah. It's, I love having an API explorer like that. <laughs> it's so really good. cool. And a lot of them these days have little check boxes where you can just say like, oh yeah, I want this data. I want this data. I want this data. Right. And it, I, and it builds up your GraphQL query. I, for I you. do. Yeah. The, the, once again, it's like static types, man. You have yeah. <laughs> when you have that kind of stuff, you can unlock a lot of those sorts of experiences, which are nice. My my vision is like I would love, like I would love it if people were like, oh yeah, have you tried Elm? It's amazing. It has this like you can just like click this UI where you just click this thing and it builds up all these different types with these little check boxes. Like I want I want people to be saying that about using Elm APIs because all the information is there. But we've got more people fiddling with tools in um, in the GraphQL tooling space. We need more people doing that in Elm. <laughs> you, you want to be a checkbox developer? <laughs> I mean, like if you know that there's like a set of finite possibilities, why not present them in a finite way to me? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm right there. <laughs> awesome! Well, it was a pleasure having you on to to hash this out. And and totally. to hear your story there. And yeah, thanks so much for coming back on, Matt. This is great. I, yeah, it's always exciting. Uh, are there any, if people have questions, uh, where should they go? And if they do you have any resources to share on the topic if they want to learn more? So the Elm GQL repo will have a guide. I will have, I am currently working on a, um, a GitHub example repo to show how it's, how it, uh, you know, asks for queries and stuff might be kind of interesting actually to have like a shadowing repo for Dylan's library. Just so if we had shadowing, meaning like if we had, if we had the same stuff, so people could be like, Oh, that's what that looks like. This is what this looks mm-hmm. like. I'm not saying I'm not putting work on Dylan's plate or my plate, but, uh, but I'm making a, uh, an example <laughs> repo. Yeah. Look for vendor Inc slash LMGQL. And there should be a number of resources to read more about it or play with it. Just to clarify Elm dash GQL. Elm dash GQL. Amazing. 
Thank you so much. And you're in. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs>